Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. The Oxford Dictionary defines a practical joke as a trick played on someone in order to make them look foolish and to amuse others. While some practical jokes are truly funny, others go too far, so much so that they sometimes even end up hurting people. In January of 1749, London newspapers advertised an upcoming show at the New Theatre in the Haymarket District. One where a man promised to thrill audiences by performing amazing feats. First, the ad said, he would take a common walking stick from an audience member and play music on it, sounding like every instrument one could imagine. Next, he would contact the spirits of the dead relatives of audience members and they would converse with their loved ones live on stage. Finally, he would squeeze his entire body into an ordinary wine bottle, after which he would sing while inside of it. Now little did the public know, the ad was the result of a bet between the Duke of Portland and the Earl of Chesterfield. The Duke bet that he could advertise something impossible and still find fools enough in London to fill a playhouse and pay handsomely for the privilege of being there. And he was right. By the night of January 16th, the show was a sellout, and tickets were even sold for standing room. But as London's public waited and waited for the 6.30 show to begin, there was no sign of the performer. Eventually, a theater worker came on stage and promised that if the conjurer didn't show up within 15 minutes, everyone would get their money back. But the audience wasn't satisfied. Someone threw a lit candle onto the stage, and then all hell broke loose. The angry mob tore up the seats, smashed the benches, and pretty much destroyed everything in sight. Then, the rioters made a huge pile of things that they had snatched from the theater and set it on fire outside the theater's entrance. Clearly, this was a practical joke that went too far. But believe it or not, there was another joke played on the public that took pranking to a whole other level. It was a practical joke that fooled thousands of people, not only across the country, but around the world. A joke that lasted over 40 years. And a joke that was responsible for the emergence of a new religion. Oh, and one more thing. This practical joke was one that was started by two little girls. Everyone in the neighborhood had heard the stories about the little house in Hydesville, New York. In 1834, a woman named Lucretia Pulver, who worked at the house, complained to her employer that she heard strange knocking sounds in her bedroom and the sounds of footsteps walking about when she was alone in the house at night. In 1846, a gentleman named Michael Weekman rented the house. Soon after moving in, he began hearing loud rapping sounds on the front door. 
When he would go to investigate, there was never anyone at the door or on the property. One night, his eight-year-old daughter woke up screaming because she said she felt a cold, clammy hand pass over her face as she slept. The ghost stories attached to the house were well known to the neighbors and villagers, but no one really paid much attention to them. After all, who could really believe that a house could actually be haunted? But all that would change dramatically when the next tenant, John Fox, moved in with his family. John was a blacksmith, and his wife Margaret kept the books for the family business. Both were members of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and they had a reputation for being truthful, honorable people. The Foxes had four children, but only two were still living at home at the time, 14-year-old Margareta, known as Maggie, and 11-year-old Catherine, who everyone called Kate or Katie. The house's spooky reputation was surely a hot topic among the local kids. So within a few weeks of moving in, Maggie and Kate would surely have heard stories about the strange knocking sounds and the feeling of being touched by a phantom hand in the middle of the night. But the girls weren't put off by these ghostly tales. In fact, they thought the whole thing was just one big joke. Their mother had heard the stories that the house was haunted, and so she began jumping at every sound. The girls thought her behavior was so funny that they started playing pranks on her. Years later, Maggie spoke of those early years, saying, When we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us as being capable of a trick because we were so young. The girls thought their little joke was all in good fun, but since their mother was so gullible, they decided to keep it going. One night, they called out to their parents that they felt a cold hand touching them as they lay in bed. Another night, they said that they felt something like a large dog brushing past them. The girls continued fooling their parents with their antics until March that year. John and Margaret didn't know what to make out of it, but they were annoyed by the constant rapping sounds that came at all hours of the day and night. Maggie pretended to be so entertained by these strange knocking sounds that she gave a name to the invisible entity suspected of making them. She began referring to him as Mr. Splitfoot, which, as everyone knows, is another name for the devil. On the night of March 31, 1848, Maggie began talking out loud to this spirit, saying, Here, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do. She would snap her fingers two or three times, then instantly the sound of loud raps would be heard answering the same number of times. Next, she made a certain number of motions with her hands, but without making a sound. Instantly, the invisible being rapped the same number of times. Katie said to her mother, who was looking on, Mother, it can see us as well as hear. Margaret was amazed, so she decided to try to communicate with this spirit herself. Count to ten, she said aloud. Immediately, ten raps came in reply. Then, she decided to test the spirit. She asked for the age of each of her children, and the correct number of raps came in reply to each name that she called out. After this, the correct answers came as to the number of children she had, both living and dead. 
Margaret was intrigued. She asked aloud, Are you a man? But there was no reply. But when she asked, Are you a spirit? A series of loud knocks were heard in response. Margaret asked the spirit if it would talk to the neighbors, and it answered that it would. So John Fox rushed over to their neighbor, Mrs. Redfield, and begged her to come over to see the amazing things that were going on in the house. When the girls were out of their parents' sight, I'm sure that they got a good laugh out of knowing that they were about to expand their practical joke to include someone outside of the family. And I'm sure that they used the brief time before their neighbor showed up to scheme about how they would pull it off with as much drama as possible. Mary Redfield was skeptical at first, but when she came over, she found the two girls huddled together on their bed, clinging to one another in terror. Now listen, Margaret said to her guest. Can you count to five for me? she asked into the thin air. Immediately, five distinct knocks were heard in the room. Then she asked, What is Mary Redfield's age? Mary would later recall, it rapped 33 times, which was my age. We all heard it. Seeing the girls looking almost paralyzed with fear, Mary told them, If there's a spirit here, it has no intention of hurting you or your parents. Cryptically, one of the girls replied, We are innocent. How good it is to have a clear conscience. Now what Margaret Fox and her neighbor didn't know was that the girls had discovered that they had a special talent. They could make loud knocking sounds simply by cracking the knuckles in their toes with no perceptible movement. When their feet were in contact with wooden surfaces, the raps were amplified and sounded as if they came from the air itself. The girls probably had every intention of eventually telling their mother that it was all just a joke. Apparently, Kate even pointed out to her that the next day was April Fool's Day and suggested that maybe someone was playing a prank on her. But by now, Mrs. Fox was too convinced, and neither sister had the heart to tell her or Mrs. Redfield the truth. And besides, they were still enjoying their little joke, and they loved all the attention that they were getting from it. So why stop now? Soon, the girls began asking the spirit to answer more elaborate questions by spelling out words through the raps. After a question was asked, one of the girls would say the letters of the alphabet until a knock was heard. The letter corresponding to that knock was written down, and the process would be repeated until a word was spelled out. It was a slow process, but one that seemed to give eerily accurate information. Within days, word of the Fox sisters' ability to communicate with spirits spread, and the house began to fill with neighbors. When there was a sizable audience of neighbors in the room with them, the girls asked who the spirit was that was making these strange knocks. It spelled out that it was the ghost of a man named Charles B. Rosna, who had been murdered for his money five years earlier. The news that a ghost was communicating with the Fox sisters spread like wildfire, and soon people from the town began showing up at the door, asking to see the spirit communications for themselves. All who sat in on the sessions were amazed by the eerie knocking sounds and by the accuracy of the information they gave. The townspeople were more than a little spooked when they heard that a murder had been committed in the house. It turned out that a peddler had disappeared about the time that the girl Lucretia Pulver had first heard the mysterious noises in the house in 1843. 
a rumor spread that he had last been seen at the house while she had been sent away for two days. Upon her return, she supposedly found that a portion of the cellar had been dug up as if something large had been recently buried there. Of course, the basement had to be searched to see if there was any truth in this story. Digging started the next day, but the cellar was flooded and nothing was found. But this didn't deter the townspeople. Based on what the Knox had told them, they were convinced that a murder had been committed in the house, so they searched for the names of former tenants. They discovered that a man named Bell had lived in the house at the same time that Lucretia Pulver was working there. With no evidence at all, they decided that he had murdered the peddler. From that time on, poor Mr. Bell, who was totally innocent, was shunned by the community and looked upon as a murderer. By the end of April, crowds of people were visiting the Fox home, with as many as 500 storming the house in a single day. Around this time, the spirit had started doing more than just making sounds. At least, that's what the girls said. They claimed that furniture moved about the house without anyone being near it, and that invisible hands squeezed them by the hair at night. They also said that their beds were shaken as they tried to sleep, and that their blankets were dragged off by unseen hands. And they added that every night they would hear the death struggle and murder of the peddler, the dragging of his body down the stairs, and the digging of his grave in the basement. The town was in a near frenzy to be part of the action. The rush of visitors increased, and it soon became impossible for the Fox family to continue living there. John and Margaret deserted the house and moved the family in with their son, David Fox, in Rochester, New York. Now, I imagine that the girls were probably more than willing to stop their joke by now. Leaving the house in Hydesville was the perfect opportunity to simply stop making the sounds. If anyone questioned them, they could claim that whatever was responsible for the rapping noises was still at the house. But as fate would have it, another player was about to enter the story. One who would elevate the girl's practical joke to unimaginable heights. Leah Fish, the Fox's eldest daughter, was a music teacher in nearby Rochester. She first heard the news about her sisters when an excited pupil read aloud from a newspaper report about the case. Leah quickly suspected that her siblings were pulling a fast one on everyone. When she paid them a visit at her brother's house, the girls admitted to her that they had perfected the art of cracking their toes and that the loud sounds they produced had fooled everyone. Leah should have been furious at her younger sisters for their deception, and maybe she was at first. But she also realized that Maggie and Kate's noisy toes had the potential to make her and the rest of the Fox family a lot of money. Leah's role in her sister's fame can't be underestimated. Some historians characterize her as being an ambitious entrepreneur. Others depict her as being an opportunist who took advantage of her young sisters. Whatever her motives, Leah knew a good thing when she saw it, and she quickly took on the role of being their manager. Now, John and Margaret were close friends with a Quaker couple who lived in Rochester, Amy and Isaac Post. The Posts invited the girls to a gathering at their home. Isaac would later write that he was skeptical at first. But his doubt quickly turned into belief when he heard very distinct knocks coming from under the floor, 
and when his questions to the girls were answered accurately. On November 14, 1849, the Posts rented Corinthian Hall in Rochester. Four hundred people paid to see the young girls who could communicate with spirits and to hear the mysterious sounds. After the demonstration, in order to assure the public that trickery wasn't involved, Mrs. Post accompanied the sisters to a private chamber where they were disrobed and examined by a committee of skeptics, but they could find no evidence of a hoax. The following day, a special committee conducted an investigation and subjected the girls to numerous tests. They reported that they could find no cause of the wrappings and that the girls didn't seem capable of deceiving anyone. Not everyone was convinced, so a second investigation was conducted the following day and different tests were used. Once again, the girls passed with flying colors. But prominent citizens who were said to be hostile to the idea of spirit communication were added to the committee for a third investigation. This time, the women in the group took the girls to a private room and removed their clothing. Then they asked questions of the spirits while the girls were standing with bare feet, first on feather pillows and then on plates of glass. It seems that the girls' toe joints were incredibly strong, because even when they weren't standing on wooden floors, the wrappings were said to be as strong and inexplicable as before. That evening, Corinthian Hall was again full to capacity. When this third committee announced that they had failed to find any deception, the crowd rushed to the stage and mobbed the girls. Luckily, a strong police presence was stationed at the front of the stage. They fought the mob back until the girls were removed to a safe place. Of course, we all know that there's no such thing as bad publicity. The mob scene was reported in many newspapers, and the Fox sisters became an overnight sensation. Leah booked them at various halls and theaters in upstate New York. Word spread of the amazing Fox sisters' ability to communicate with spirits, and all of their public and private spirit demonstrations quickly sold out. As frantic as people were to believe in the girls, there were many who were certain that they were frauds, even if the exact method that they used to produce the knocking sounds hadn't been discovered. One skeptic was a teacher named Miss Allen, one of Katie's former teachers. She attended a session with the girls. Margaret Fox asked her, Is there any one of your departed relatives or friends that you would like to converse with? Yes, Miss Allen replied. I had a grandmother who I loved very much, and I would like to talk with her. I'm interested in education, and I would like to know something about the methods in the other world. Spelling, for example. How does my grandmother now spell the word scissors? The knocks on the floor began immediately. They spelled out S-I-S-S-E-R-S. Oh, how interesting, said Miss Allen. That's just the way Katie used to spell the word scissors when she was a student in my school. Those who attended these spirit demonstrations said that the girls, who were small, delicate, and shy, often appeared confused and uncertain about their powers and the reaction of those around them. By all appearances, the sisters didn't seem interested at all in being in the public eye. They had been examined numerous times and no trickery was ever discovered, so they were obviously telling the truth. 
In the winter of 1849, the Fox sisters retreated from giving public performances because they feared for their safety. They moved their demonstrations to private homes, and there was never a lack of paying customers. They began holding large gatherings for the general public at Leah's cottage. Visitors packed every room, both upstairs and down, and when they ran out of room, people sat on the stairs. By now, the Fox sisters were performing as a threesome, with Leah guiding the communications by asking questions. Sometimes, the raps gave inaccurate or vague information, which led many to believe that the girls were responsible for making the sounds. But other times, the information was strangely accurate, and for good reason. One reading they gave suggests that they did some research on their guests before they met with them. Case in point was a reading done for a Universalist minister named Charles Hammond. Hammond attended a gathering of about 20 people at Leah's cottage. The spirits wrapped answers to many of the participants' questions, but they refused to answer any of his questions. When he expressed his disappointment, the spirits promised to answer his questions if he returned the following day. When he did, the spirits seemed to know every detail of his life. He was so convinced of the girl's honesty that it never occurred to him that Leah might have used the extra time to research his background. In 1850, Leah booked the girls at large venues in Albany, New York. There they found themselves in demand not only for large public events, but also for seances held at their hotel. Next, they moved on to Troy, New York, where they again performed to large crowds. But of course, the real money awaited them just a short boat ride down the Hudson River. In June 1850, Leah booked the sisters in a room at Barnum's Hotel in New York City, an establishment owned by the cousin of P.T. Barnum. The girls were accompanied by their mother, while Leah stayed in Rochester conducting seances of her own. The sisters conducted spirit communication sessions in the hotel's parlor, where as many as 30 attendees gathered around a large table each day at 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m. They also gave private readings in between their regular performances. Of course, by now the girls were so famous that the public was more than happy to pay the $1 admission price, the equivalent of around $40 today. Guests included journalists, politicians, businessmen, doctors, lawyers, ministers, and anyone else who could afford to pay. The girls became so popular that a well-known singer incorporated a new song into her Broadway act. The song was titled, The Rochester Knockings at Barnum's Hotel. The Fox sisters became an overnight sensation in New York City, and their public seances attracted many notable people. These included the founding editor of the Evening Post, William Cullen Bryant, American historian and politician George Bancroft, novelist James Fenimore Cooper, writer and editor Nathaniel Parker Willis, prominent abolitionist, journalist, and social reformer William Lloyd Garrison, and editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley. Greeley became so convinced that the girls were spiritually gifted that he became a kind of protector for them. Katie was even invited to live with the Greeleys in their house in Chappaqua, New York for a time. 
He also introduced them to his wealthy friends, which enabled the sisters to give private readings in higher social circles. Now, it's no surprise that many people knew that the girls were just con artists. In 1851, C. Chauncey Burr, a Universalist minister, lawyer, and lecturer, wrote a series of letters to the Tribune about his suspicions about the Fox sisters. In one, he informed the newspaper's readers that he and his brother, Herman Burr, had managed to produce raps so loud that they were distinctly heard in a hall that was crowded with an audience of a thousand people. How? By cracking the joints in their toes. Newspapers humorously labeled the Burr brothers' theory toology, and believers in spirit communication ridiculed their claims. But their demonstration attracted a new group of critics who were eager to test the sisters' abilities. These included medical doctors and professors of medicine. After their stint in New York City, they traveled to Buffalo, New York. While there, a local newspaper published a letter by three medical professors who had visited the sisters. They insisted that the girls were consciously making the rapping sounds by manipulating their toes or other joints in their bodies. They also said that they were introduced to a woman who was able to produce the exact same knocking sounds by dislocating the joints in her knees. When the girls read the article, they were furious. Either that, or they knew that their source of income was in jeopardy. They had fooled everyone up to this point, and they were confident that they could even fool a group of medical professionals. So they publicly challenged the doctors to examine them in the presence of six of their own friends as witnesses. This resulted in a series of grueling investigations at Buffalo's Phelps House Hotel where the girls were staying. Some of the examinations lasted as long as four hours. The doctors sat right in front of Maggie as the raps were produced, and at times they seized her knees to see if they could prevent the sounds from coming or to feel her joints moving. After the examinations, the doctors reaffirmed their suspicions that Maggie was manipulating her joints to make the sounds. They pointed out that when her knees were held or constrained, virtually no sounds were heard. One doctor said that he could feel the motion of her bone during the rare occasions that sounds were heard when he was touching her. They also pointed out that the sounds were obviously coming from Maggie's vicinity. Critics pointed out that the sounds seemed to emanate from different parts of the room, but the doctors countered with the theory that what the girls were doing was akin to ventriloquism. By directing the sitter's attention to a particular part of the room, it would seem as if the sounds were coming from there. Leah responded by accusing the doctors of refusing to admit that they had heard more raps than they wrote about. She did, however, say that the spirits didn't always cooperate during the examination. Surprisingly, she also admitted that when Maggie's feet were placed on cushions stuffed with shavings and resting on her heels, no sounds were heard. But she quickly countered this by declaring that the spirits were well within their rights to hold back sounds because they were offended by the doctor's unshakable skepticism. That same year, a woman named Mrs. Culver announced in a deposition that Kate had confessed to being a fraud. She claimed that she had a conversation with the girl and asked how she could produce a successful seance herself. She admitted that the raps were produced by her toes, and that all of her toes were used to make the sounds. She also said that they worked best when she warmed her feet up ahead of time. 
Kate told the woman that she and her sisters worked as a team. When she was asked for a name and the alphabet was called out, she would wait until her sister touched her arm when the correct letter was called. She also said that she read facial clues and body language when answering clients' questions. But even this damning testimony failed to quell the Fox sisters' popularity. Throughout their three-month stay in Buffalo, their demonstrations were packed with spectators. This was partially due to Leah's shrewd gift for public relations. She announced that the sisters would perform free of charge for two weeks. After words spread about how amazing the girls were, patrons were more than willing to pay after the two-week freebie was up. As a result, by the end of their stay in Buffalo, the Fox sisters had made a considerable amount of money. Word travels fast, and the sisters became a hot commodity. Hundreds of requests were made for the girls to put on spirit demonstrations in large halls and theaters across the country. They had made so much money in New York that they couldn't pass up the opportunity. By now, Leah was claiming that she too could communicate with spirits, so she stayed behind in New York, entertaining callers in a seance room, while Kate and Maggie took the show on the road accompanied by their mother. They traveled to Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. Throughout the 1850s, the Fox sisters continued to perform to large crowds across the country. Soon, other mediums started claiming that they too could contact spirits through various means. One method was called table tipping, whereby a group of people would place their hands lightly on a tabletop and it would tip back and forth in response to questions. It would also spell out words much in the same way that the Fox sisters did with their rapping sounds. The method was time-consuming, however, so a number of devices were invented to speed up the process. The most popular and most enduring was one that we're all familiar with today, the Ouija board. With the spiritualist movement in full swing, the Fox sisters spent the next three decades giving readings and performing for audiences, and they continued to be both embraced and challenged by the public. But as is the case with many celebrities, fame often comes with a price. In 1851, Leah married for the second time and moved to New York where the sisters continued holding seances when they weren't on the road. In 1852, Maggie met famed Arctic explorer Elisha Kane. He was convinced that she and her sisters were frauds, but he fell in love with the 19-year-old and the two were married in 1856. Maggie converted to Catholicism and she stopped participating in the seances. But 37-year-old Elisha died less than a year later. Maggie was devastated. She had a nervous breakdown and at times was delirious due to the narcotic medicine she was prescribed. In addition, the drinking habit she had developed over the years had become serious. When she eventually recovered from her grief, she resumed her work as a medium. It's unknown what was going through the sisters' heads all this time. What started out as a joke played on their mother when they were children had turned into a thriving, fraudulent business, and their seances and private readings were also responsible for starting the spiritualist movement. Other fraudulent mediums saw the sisters' success as an opportunity to cash in on the spiritualist craze, which meant that even more people were being deceived and robbed of their money. 
Like child stars of today, being in the limelight at such an early age took a toll on the younger Fox sisters. Maggie and Kate began drinking alcohol when they were still teenagers. By the 1860s, they were both severe alcoholics. Their addiction deepened when both their parents died in 1865. In 1872, Kate traveled to England where she gave private readings to prominent and wealthy people and also held group seances. That same year, she married H.D. Jenkin, a London lawyer and enthusiastic spiritualist. In 1876, Maggie joined Kate in England where she established her own following. By the 1880s, Maggie and Kate were both now widowed and the two had become full-blown alcoholics. Kate returned to the U.S. in 1885, but she continued to struggle with alcoholism. On May 4, 1888, two police officers visited her home at the request of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. When Kate answered the door, the officers could clearly see that she was undeniably drunk. She was arrested and held for $300 bail for neglecting her two sons, 14-year-old Ferdy and 12-year-old Henry. The boys were sent to a group foster home. Now the press had a field day with the news. The day after her arraignment, Kate gave an interview to a New York newspaper. She denied mistreating her children and pointed out that the boys lived full-time in Rochester where they attended boarding school. They were just visiting for two weeks when she was arrested, but she did admit to having a drinking problem. She confided to the reporter that when she and her sister Maggie were young and famous, the two had been wined and dined everywhere they went. They were given alcohol with their meals, and people often sent them baskets of champagne as gifts. This, she said, was how her drinking habits started. Now, back in England, Maggie suspected that Leah was responsible for Kate's arrest, and she would stop at nothing to get her revenge, even if it meant destroying her own career in the process. She traveled back to the U.S. and made a stunning announcement. On October 21, 1888, she would appear live on stage at the New York Academy of Music and expose spiritualism as a fraud. That same morning, the New York World published an exclusive interview with Maggie for which she was paid $1,500, the equivalent of around $47,000 today. In her statement, she lashed out at Leah, saying, My sister Kate and I were very young children when this horrible deception began. At night when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor, or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. She explained how the girls advanced to making sounds with their knuckles and joints, first with their fingers, then with their toes. She said that the neighbors came to investigate, but no one suspected them of deception because they were young children. She reiterated that she and Kate were purposely led on by Leah, but said that their mother was innocent of the deception even up to the time of her death. She accused Leah of forcing them to continue fooling adults, even though they told her that the whole thing had started out as a joke, and that Leah pocketed hundreds of dollars a night when the girls performed in Rochester. She also said that Leah wanted to start a new religion, which is why she claimed to also be able to contact spirits. 
Maggie also accused Leah of essentially brainwashing her and Kate into believing that the spirit visitations were real, all the while supplying them with cues about when to rap yes or no at seances. But never once during the interview did she blame herself or Kate for keeping the deception going for more than 40 years and for making money off of it in later years independent of their sister Leah. That night, she took to the stage at the Academy of Music. The audience was packed with those who supported spiritualism and with those who condemned it. Kate was seated in the audience where Maggie could see her, showing her silent support for what her sister was about to do. Maggie wore a black dress and a flowered hat. As she nervously read a prepared statement in a loud, clear voice, the room erupted into a series of cheers, hisses, and boos. When she finished her statement, several physicians were called up onto the stage. Maggie slipped off one of her shoes, placed her foot on a small wooden table, and began producing loud raps that were heard throughout the theater. As she did this, the doctors carefully examined her and declared that the sounds were indeed made by her big toe. Maggie publicly insisted that her sister Leah knew that the wrappings were fake all along and that she exploited her younger sisters. Before exiting the stage, she thanked God that she was able to expose spiritualism. The press called Maggie's appearance a death blow to spiritualism. Other mediums scrambled to save face themselves. Some said that Maggie's statement and demonstration came as a result of her failing to make a living as a medium and that she sought to profit by becoming one of spiritualism's fiercest critics. A year later, Maggie recanted her confession in an interview, insisting that her spirit guides had inspired her to do so. In it, she blamed unknown people for causing her to say that spiritualism was a fraud. She said, Would to God that I could undo the injustice I did the cause of spiritualism under the strong psychological influences of persons who were opposed to it. I gave expression to utterances that had no foundation in fact and that would at the time throw discredit on the spiritualist phenomenon. She insisted that her only goal in giving this new interview was to set the record straight. But she also admitted that she hoped to earn an income by resuming her work as a medium in support of spiritualism. But the damage was done, and her career as a medium was over. After Maggie announced that she and spiritualism were a fraud, the movement rapidly declined. The public became suspicious of mediums' claims and of the physical manifestations that some were able to produce. These included phantom voices, glowing hands and faces in darkened rooms, the sound of musical instruments playing with no one near them, and strange writing appearing on slates when the lights were turned on. On November 1, 1890, Leah died at her home in New York City. She was 77 years old. On July 2, 1892, Kate died at the age of 55 of kidney disease, which was exacerbated by her heavy drinking. By this time, Maggie was penniless and living in an apartment in New York City that had been loaned to her by a member of the Spiritualist Society. She died on March 8, 1893, at the age of 59. The Fox sisters may have been responsible for the rise of spiritualism, but Maggie's confession that it was all just a fraud wasn't the only reason the movement died out at the end of the 18th century. 
The public was anxious to know the truth about communicating with the dead. Physical mediums were tested under more rigorous conditions, and one by one they were caught in the act of deceiving their clients. Also, people simply grew tired of all the paranormal hoopla. People were living longer lives because of the breakthroughs in medicine, so there were fewer people yearning to communicate with loved ones whose lives had been tragically cut short. Also, women were starting to work outside of the home, so a career as a medium became less attractive. Eastern mysticism was being integrated with the traditions of Western spirituality, and people flocked to new spiritual groups, such as the Theosophical Society and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. These belief systems taught that the spirits of our loved ones lived on after death, but they didn't place as much importance on communicating with them directly. But believe it or not, spiritualism isn't gone. Not by a long shot. There are spiritualist churches all over the world. The spiritualist service is usually conducted by a medium. Like many other religions, there is usually an opening prayer, an address or a sermon, and the singing of hymns. But unlike traditional religions, the spiritualist service ends with a demonstration of mediumship. Messages from spirits are passed along to members of the congregation, and people gather together in healing circles. And while spiritualism no longer listens for the sound of knocks and responses to their questions, I would bet that a knock or two has been heard from time to time at these services. Maybe those knocks are coming from the spirit of Maggie, Kate, or Leah Fox, announcing their presence and letting everyone know that it wasn't all just a joke after all. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings.